Let me make a quick transition because I know that I have a limited amount of time to talk about a very important subject. And if you have your outline, I invite you to take that out. I'll warn you in advance, I'm not going to get through this message. I already set it up to be a two-parter, so we'll talk more about this next week. I I apologize for not even getting into the bulk of some of the things I wanted to talk about here today, but we'll be laying the foundation, and I hope as you leave here today, you'll be more equipped to be able to pray and discern what God is doing in this country. As many of you are aware, our United States Supreme Court heard arguments back in April. We talked about that a little bit in these services here. As to the issue of the legal definition of marriage in the United States of America. And I had said back at that time that they were going to come out with a decision probably uh, in June. That looks like that's been pushed back to later June, maybe even early July, because of all the discussion and debate that is going on over this issue. But at its core, at its core, is whether marriage should be defined as being between one man and one woman, or if it should be legal across our country for men to marry men and women to marry women. And so what I want to do over the next couple of weeks as this Supreme Court decision will be coming out in the very near future is to show you what really is at stake in this issue. It's one thing for people to sin. And let's be honest, okay? We are sinners. I am a sinner, And if you didn't realize that, you can just talk to my wife. She will let you know. I am a sinner, okay? You are a sinner as well. We are all sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We all sin. It's one thing for people to sin, however. It's quite another when a society tries to redefine sin as being normal and healthy. Please hear me on that redefining sin as being normal and healthy is what's at stake here. When a country's leadership redefines what God has already clearly defined, not calling sin, sin, that's when civilizations fall. That's when it gets really scary to live within that land. And so we need to look and see what the definition of marriage is. And as we as a church have come together, here has been our definition. I'll put it up here on the screen. I shared some messages last May, early June. We shared four messages about marriage. But here's what we have defined as marriage. We value marriage as a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman that reflects Christ's relationship with his church. And I'll talk more about that very specifically at the end of the message. But that's been our definition of marriage. It's pulled from Ephesians 5 and other places within Scripture. And so what we need to talk about here is where our culture really is. Because we live in a postmodern day. A postmodern age where it's not based upon truth. Decisions are not based upon what is factual and what is not. It's based more upon feelings and what you feel could be right. And in this postmodern age where two-thirds of the people don't believe in absolute truth, where they don't believe that there's a black and a white, they don't believe there's a right and a wrong, there has got to be some sort of moral compass in the land. There has to be. And that moral compass cannot be a judge's interpretation, 
that moral compass cannot be any legalized even morality that people are supposed to have. It can't be found in the shifting sands of feelings and emotions. For hundreds of years, that truth has been based upon God's word. This has been the compass, the moral compass, whether spoken overtly or not. This has been the moral compass of our land. And in fact, when the hearings were done back in April and the debates were kind of uh, made, that was what, what a couple of Supreme Court justices said. And I was thrilled to hear that they were saying that. They were saying, who are we to define marriage where it has been between a man and a woman for hundreds of years in this country, thousands of years across all of history? They were asking and saying, questioning even, are we the ones to change that definition? I hope that comes out. I hope that plays out. But I don't know if that was just a rhetorical question, just a question as they were thinking, or if it's something that they're going to be basing their decisions upon. But there needs to be a moral compass because as of today and really in our land, there is no foundation for truth. There is no foundation for right or wrong because this word has been thrown out. It's been, it's been, it's been just, just let go. Well, that word says what it says. It's an old book. It's an archaic book. It doesn't apply to today. And people make their decisions and their values based upon what they feel, based upon what the culture says at the time. And as we talk about this legalizing of same-sex marriage, again, a nation calling sin normal and healthy. You've got to see what's at stake here. And I realize, I realize that there are so many varying opinions on this. I'll talk a little bit about age groupings in just a bit. In fact, I talked with somebody right after the 8 o'clock service. They were encouraging me as a pastor. They, they, they were saying, it's a long road. We're praying for you. And they said, it's hard when a child is going through it. It's hard when a child is identifying themselves in this way as well. I, I, I realize that. And it's easy to stand back, maybe if you've not been personally touched with this issue, and, and, and say one thing or another. But folks, we have to come to a place of chasing truth. We have to come to a place of letting truth be our leader, be our guide. And that's what God's Word talks about. Because here's what's been going on in the last 60, 50, 60 years in our country. Specifically for the last 50, the homosexual activist movement has had a master plan, and at its core has been to destruct a uh, destruction of the nuclear family as we have known it. The goals of this movement has been for universal acceptance of a gay lifestyle, for a discrediting of scriptures that condemn homosexuality. In other words, saying, well, those scriptures really don't apply today, or that's just an archaic type of a book. We don't really need to follow that. They've had as this agenda a muzzling of clergy and of the Christian media. They've had as this agenda an overturning of laws, of of granting special privileges and rights and laws for those who are homosexual, of indoctrinating children and future generations through public education, and of securing all the legal benefits of marriage for any two or more people who want to be married. That has been an agenda and a movement that has moved through our country over the last five decades. And it's interesting that we in North America and Europe, the educated ones, as Pastor Mike just showed, um, the poor, the rich and the poor, we are the educated ones, and perhaps we are overeducated for our own good. 
For we are trying to reinterpret what God's word says. And it says, even as Judge Robert Bork has said, we no longer are slouching towards Gomorrah. We are hurtling towards Sodom and Gomorrah and all that that stood for. And at the core of it, I believe, is this word called tolerance. Because we we come to this place of wanting to be tolerant because our culture and society says you need to be tolerant. Folks, there is a huge difference between tolerance and forgiveness. We live in a society where being tolerant means we live and let live. You'll, You'll have heard of some of these phrases. And the younger you are, the more you live in it. We've heard the phrases, live and let live. I won't judge you if you don't judge me. Or we hear this phrase, any of you who is without sin, you be the first to throw a stone. In other words, shut up if you have never sinned. And when you've all sinned, so you shouldn't be talking. Tolerance is different than forgiveness. God doesn't tolerate sin. God does not tolerate sin. He forgives sin, but he doesn't tolerate sin. Sin needs to be called sin. In fact, the the New Testament word for forgiveness is an active, powerful word that means to release. And so what God does is he releases us from the consequences of that sin. He releases us from the penalty of that sin and the power of that sin over the top of us. Now, I said consequences. I did not mean consequences. Those consequences still oftentimes play out in our lives. But he releases us from the penalty and the power of sin when God forgives. In fact, let me give you an analogy of this. It's a little bit like when it when I was a first-time dad, I know when I was a first-time dad, my kids made stinking messes in their diapers, as I'm sure yours did as well. Your kids, your grandkids did the same exact thing. It would be a little bit like people, and you can hear the non-judgmentalists kind of talking like this, where they would say, you know what, it's okay, all babies stink, deal with it, love them anyway, just look the other way, breathe through your mouth, you'll be okay, don't worry about changing them. What does a good parent do? What did I do and my wife do as being good parents? What did you do as well? I would hope that you came alongside and you changed that little dirty diaper that was there, that you washed up that child, you dried them off, you got their bottom all prepped, and you put a new diaper on them. And when the proper time came, you taught them self-restraint and refraining from making a stinking mess, right? Aren't you glad someone taught you that at some point in time? Your neighbor's glad if you're not glad, all right? That's the reality. Someone taught us that. Someone helped us at one time or another. Church, we cannot be tolerant of sin. Sin is sin. God does not allow sin. God does not tolerate sin. As a church, we cannot as well. And here's where it gets really kind of sticky. Here's where it gets interesting. According to the Barna Research Group, which measures lifestyle, leisure habits, behaviors, attitudes of born-again Christians as compared to non-Christians. Listen to this. They came to the conclusion a number of years ago. There is no appreciable difference in lifestyle between a Christian and a non-Christian. Except that Christians go to church, give money to church, and have more Bibles in their homes. That was their conclusion. Not even necessarily that they read their Bibles more, but they have more Bibles in their homes, as we just saw from Pastor Mike sharing that, that, yep, we got more Bibles, and so we have them in our homes, but do we read them? Do we follow them? 67%, two out of three, 
born-again Christians say they do not believe in absolute truth, meaning they do not have a standard for what truth is measured upon. No foundational truth of what is right and what is wrong. And what that has dictated is a godless Christianity, which is a strange phrase to say, and I hate the fact that I even am saying it. A godless Christianity, where people accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but then they decide what they want to do, what decisions they make, how they want to live, just as though God doesn't even exist. I'll give you an example of this. Um, my wife and I went to New York City a number of years ago. How many of you have been to, to New York City or another large, large city like that? Yeah, they play by different rules there in New York City, don't they? One of the places I saw this was in the simple crossing of a, of a, of a street where there was a street sign or a, a street light. And it had specifically the walk, the don't walk kind of signs, you know, the red and then the green, and after a while it turns green, then it turns red, turns green, a little cross, crosswalk. You would think we would obey those signs, wouldn't you? In fact, my wife and I went there, and the first times we came up to the, to the curb, we just stood there because the sign said don't walk, so we didn't walk. But everybody else was walking back and forth as though it did not matter one bit. Right? You've been there? You've seen this? If you've been to a big city, you, you've seen this before. I thought, you know, would that be taking place if there was a police officer here writing citations to people as they were walking back and forth across the street? Probably not. Right? That would probably divert people from walking across the crosswalk. Right? There wasn't a police officer. And so people just got to decide what they wanted to do. It got so bad that even I as a pastor said, what am I doing standing on this street corner if everybody else is walking back and forth across that place? In fact, my wife and I just looked down there and said, okay, I mean, why stand here, right? I mean, we walked out into the street. It was almost like we were going to be judged, right? Like, like, did they have a camera on us? Like, you know, First Baptist Stockton have a video camera seeing if I would do this right or wrong. I did. We did. We just walked across the street. We just joined everybody else. And after a while, at first it felt like a little odd. Then it felt, you know, that's a little on your conscience. But the more you did it, the more it wasn't on your conscience, right? I'm not proud to share that story, but that's the way that, was, that, that you did it. It's kind of the way you had to survive. I remember even running through the streets. I was jogging one morning, not even thinking about stopping when the light said red because no cars were coming and just kept running across the street. That is the way that many people in the society are living today. And if you're not a believer, okay, you don't even have a standard of moral truth. That's one thing. But for the church, the people who follow Christ, now to say, well, we'll just do what everybody else is doing, folks, it's wrong and it's sin. And we cannot come to that place. It is way too easy to go with the flow. Something or someone has to call right, right, and wrong, wrong. And as we look at this issue of same-sex marriage... We have to look to God's Word, and so let's do that for just a bit. You have the outline. You can look at the verses there. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you, look into your Bibles today and see what this says. Romans chapter 1 is the first set of verses I want to read. Romans 1, 24 is where I'll begin. These are Paul's words. He says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the, what's the word there? Exchanged what? Truth. Truth 
about God for a what? For a lie. Truth taken away and a lie exchanged. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. He goes on to say, for this reason, God, again, here's the phrase, gave them up, which is really kind of a scary phrase. As to allow God just kind of saying, okay, if that's what you want to do, then go ahead, you do that. In a sense, kind of taking his hands off. I fully believe God's hands are on our country. His hands of blessings are on our country. I shudder at the day when he just lets us do whatever we want to do. Now, you have free will. You have free choice, yes. But I also believe you have a conscience. And our guiding principles of our founding fathers in this country base it upon this God's word. And when that just gets thrown out the window, that's when you have to be scared to say, is God just going to give us up? What does he give them up to? He gave them up, verse 26 again, to dishonorable passions. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Shouldn't go that way. That's not how God made us. Those aren't the parts God put together. Man and woman, that fits together. Face to face, that's where it comes. Contrary to relations with women. And then it says, and likewise, the men gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Sin, as God calls it. Flip back over about four or five books to the book of Matthew. Again, we just want to see what God's word says about this. Matthew chapter 19. Jesus is addressing an issue about marriage, specifically divorce. And in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4, he says, Have you not read that he who created them, meaning humans, from the beginning, made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And if you go back to verse 5, you'll see that that is actually a quote that Jesus gives from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where God ordains the male-female relationship. Back in the Garden of Eden, placing Adam and Eve together, putting them together, having this natural desire that, that they will leave their father and mother, hold fast to a wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Even before the human institutions of the church and government Marriage was instituted by God, and he shares how it's instituted by God back in the garden, Genesis chapter 2, male and female, leaving together their their mother and father, becoming one, one in flesh together. That's how God set that up. Go with me to one more in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians after Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Read like this. This again is Paul. Saying, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men with, who practice homosexuality, 
nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Pretty straightforward word. In fact, this is one of the verses that I just could not rationalize when about 15 years ago, and some of you who are here 15, 20 years ago know that our church was on the leading, cutting edge of, of, of looking and tackling this issue within our own denomination. At the time, we had over 120 churches from um, uh, Northern California and parts of Nevada. And four of those 120 churches decided to say, no, we believe homosexuality is okay with God's word. We believe it's okay with God's teaching. And we would open up the word and we would say, no, it's not. How can you say that? Churches, people who profess a Christian faith, saying, we believe it's okay. And so eventually in that decision, again, if you heard about this, Pastor Jim shared a lot about this. We disfellowshiped four churches and said, you have stepped out of bounds. When you step out of bounds, you're no longer on the playing field. You're disqualified. You're disfellowshiped. That's the way it has to be. We stuck, we held strong with the denomination saying, no, we joined with other churches who said God's word is God's word. And the teaching that he gives to us, we take literally verse by verse and, and truthfully, we base our truth upon God's word. And so where are we now? Well, where's our society? Where are we going with all this? You can see on your outline, I wrote those words, where are we going? You can see on the back page, Let's just talk about, and I'm only going to be able to, again, share this first one. I'll share the next parts next week, uh, or the other three points, plus more next week. But let me just say this very quickly. I wrote down, legalizing same-sex marriages will lead down a slippery slope. A very slippery slope. I mean, years ago, the Utah ACLU actually suggested, they challenged in this law, that they wanted it to be known that the state had to set up to prove that a polygamous relationship is detrimental to society. No longer were they even saying, okay, show us why it's okay um, uh, for for, uh, a man and a man, a woman and a woman. They were saying, you prove why this is wrong with us. You tell us why it's better to be a woman and a man together as God has set that up. They reversed, they flipped the order on this. By saying, you have to disprove why this is uh, uh, wrong. Despite 5,000 years of history, the burden laid upon the person who followed God's word to have to prove why God's way of doing things was the right way of doing it. And if you didn't, you were called a bigot, you were called uh, uh, other names, hate mongers, whatever it may be. All it takes is one possessed judge to flip the law and to say, well, this is now the way I see it being done. And then that's the way it goes. And it doesn't just stop at one man versus uh, and one man with another man and one woman with another woman. Who's to say that it now can't be one man with three women? Who's to say it can't be one woman with three men? Who's to say it can't be group marriage? Who's to say it can't be marriage between relatives? Who's to say it can't be marriage between adults and children? Who's to say that a man can't marry his donkey? Go for it. Have fun. There you go. Enjoy that one. Who's to say it's not going to go down that road? It will be a very, very slippery slope. Men and boys, sex with minors, and the media desensitizes this. The media has created this tolerance kind of society asking us to be tolerant of a sinful lifestyle. You know where that's going, and, and again, I won't talk about this a lot here today, but where it's going is to try and shut up for me from even preaching a message like this. Do you realize in just a few years... That if I preach a message like this, after I would say it, I could be arrested and put in jail for sharing the words that I'm sharing right now. 
Do you realize some of you who are Christian business leaders, if you, if you are upon your morals and deny people some services that you just don't feel right about because they're infringing upon your beliefs, that you could be put in jail as well? That's happened already. We, we've read about it up in Oregon. I think it was a florist in a bakery who a couple asked that they do the flowers for their wedding, and the, and the business said, I am sorry, but, but, and they were friends even. The, the, the florist had befriended the gay couple. They were friends. The gay couple asked them to do it. They said, I'm, I'm sorry, we can't support that marriage. And that lawsuit came, took place, and that business, they, they went out of business because of the lawsuit saying that we will not be forced to have to do this. Do you realize I could be forced? We could be forced to have to hire someone who is a homosexual against Christian teachings. I won't hire a murderer on my staff. I won't hire, you know, these other things that are talked about, but I can be forced to have to hire someone who's homosexual. I won't hire someone who, who steals money and, and has done that and put them in charge of the money there, but, but we can be forced to have to. It is a slippery slope, and who knows where it will stop. We're, we're, we're fringing upon some dangerous, dangerous territory. Here's what's also interesting about this. Is that um, the age groupings make this a very precarious topic. Because if you are here today in your, let's call them mid to upper 20s and lower, statistics have shown us that overwhelmingly, you would be in favor of same-sex marriage. You have been born into a culture that is championing it. You have watched media. You have seen the token gay people appear on each of the uh, sitcoms that you have watched, and it's just become a natural thing that you have accepted. And as a Christian, you really need to look at this and say, okay, am I following the ways of the culture, or am I truly looking to God's Word to say what is right and what is not? So if you are, let's call it mid-20s and under, your culture, your generation would say that you are a uh, uh, favor of same-sex marriage. However, if you are 50 and up, just the opposite is true. That you would be overwhelmingly opposed to same-sex marriage. You could not fathom why it would even be approached and why I would even need to talk about it in this much and the Supreme Court would need to debate it. And then those age groupings in between, let's call it the late 20s up to the mid-40s, that's the confused and the deciding generation where we're in the middle of saying, well, I'm not sure because I've seen this played out, but I'm seeing this and I've lived in the culture of this, and that's when it gets to be a really, really messy time. And all three of those age groupings are in the sanctuary right now. But you need to look at God's Word. It's not about what the culture says. It's not about what a, a sitcom portrays. And, and you know, you, it's not about hating people who choose that lifestyle. We need to love them. They need more friendships. They need more Christian people in their lives. But we can't come to a place of accepting it. We can't come to a place of saying it's normal and healthy. We're not going to go out and condemn it and, and, and shout them down. That's not the heart of Jesus. I'll share more about that next week. That's not his heart. But to stand back and to say that it's normal and healthy is also a place where we just cannot come to. Now, here's what's interesting about this. In years past, the debate was not um, call, about calling uh, same-sex marriage a marriage, but it was about calling it a union. Do you remember this when, when many people who were saying, okay, you know, just don't use the, the biblical religious term marriage. Use the word a union. Do you remember what happened with that? Didn't fly. 
The activists said, uh-uh, no way. The homosexual activist movement went after it and called and said, no, we want that definition of marriage to apply to us as well in the United States of America. That's how we've gotten into this place that we're at. Why did they go so hard after that? Let me share with you why. Because it's a spiritual battle, folks. It is a spiritual battle, and Satan is behind this. And I'll tell you why. Throughout Scripture, marriage is defined in our relationship with God. Over and over and over again, we see God talking about his church, his people, as his bride and him the groom. In fact, I did a funeral service for Corinne Kurtz a week and a half ago, and I shared the verse out of Revelation chapter 21 where it talks about at the end of time, Jesus comes, and it says, as a bride beautifully dressed, the bride is us, beautifully dressed for her groom. It's culminated in Revelation. Again, a marriage type of a definition. You want to know why Satan's gone after that so hard? That's the reason why. Because he knows that if he can get at us in our relationship with God, it's going to discredit this entire scripture. It's going to discredit his people. We need to stand up for what's truth, First Baptist. We need to know what is truth. We need to put that into practice. We need to play that out. Again, in Ephesians chapter 5, that marriage analogy comes out as well where they're trying to taint the well of truth. In fact, look at that real quick. Ephesians chapter 5, you have it. uh, I don't think it's in your bulletin, but we'll put it up on the screen here. Ephesians chapter 5, verse um, 22, Paul starts talking about, and this is the most you know, uh, appealing passage where marriage, husbands and wives, and what Paul uh, encourages us as uh, wives to do and husbands to do. And then he breaks out, look at verse 25. He breaks out all of a sudden by saying, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's what's so interesting. He's in this passage of teaching on husbands and wives. Here's what you should do. Here's what you should do. Here's how you treat one another. And all of a sudden, he jets off into this relationship that God has with his people through Christ. Again, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, dying for the church. That's what Christ did. He died for us. He gave himself up. That's why we're going to cut the teaching time here a little bit short because I want us to just come to a place uh, of prayer and and allowing God's spirit to, to, to wash over us as we do a communion time, remembering that God has asked us to join in a relationship with him. And he gave his life up for us. But before you put all your stuff away, let me let me just take you back. Because I want us to finish up the verses in that 1 Corinthians chapter. Okay? It's on the back of your outline at the very bottom if you don't have it in your scripture. But if you have your scriptures open again, look at what it says. And let me read it all in just a context that flows all the way through. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I read 9 and 10 before. Let me read 11 as well, though. Let me read it from the, uh, verse 9. Paul says, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I'm sure all of us are saying, yeah, yeah, see, there it is, but go on. Because look what it says. It says, and such were some of 
Let me say that again. Such were some of you. But you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's why we get to come to a place of communion. That's why we are in relationship with God. Because that's what we were. That's not what we are. It's because of what Jesus did for us on the cross that we're forgiven. We're not perfect. Again, you sin, I sin. We all sin, but we've been forgiven. And now we try and live the right way by the power of God's Holy Spirit. That's a big difference than saying, no, I choose to willingly sin, and I don't care what you say about it, I discredit God's word. Big difference in that. And so we come to a place of saying, no, this is what we now are. I was that, now I'm not. That's why we get to approach the communion table. That's why Jesus went to the cross to die for us. That's why he gathered with his disciples so long ago. The night before he died, he gathered them around the table. He said, until the day I come again, I want you to do this. And he took out some bread and he broke it. And he gave it to each of his disciples. And he said, take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me until I come again. And then he took a cup and he passed it around with some wine in it. And he said, take and drink. Do this until I come again. This is the blood of a new covenant. This is what you were. Judged, guilty, sinner. But because of me going to the cross, now you are justified. Now you are sanctified. Now you are my child. We step from life to death with a belief in Jesus Christ. If you believe in Jesus... We invite you to partake in these elements. If you're not there yet, if you're just exploring, if you're searching this, if you're scratching your head, you're saying, I'm not so sure about this yet, that's okay. We ask you, don't partake in these elements. These are for people who are part of the family of God. However, I believe if you're ready to do that, then today would be the best day to step into that presence and say, God, I choose to be your bride. You're my groom. That wedding relationship is confirmed now in my heart my soul. I choose to be a part of your family. So before we take these elements together, why don't we pause for a moment? Let's pray. Let's ask God to uh, have his presence felt as we partake these elements. God, I thank you for a time when we can join together, celebrate what you have done. God, you willingly went to the cross for us to die for us, to give yourself, your life up through the person of Jesus Christ. God, we praise you for that. We did not deserve that. Lord, even when we were sinners, you died for us. When we were idolaters, when we were adulterers, when we were homosexuals, when we were liars and swindlers and thieves, God, that's what we were, but because of what Jesus did for on the cross, we can put that into our past. It's no longer our story. Now our story is your story, God. We live in that reality. Folks, if you have not taken that step, if you have not received Christ as Lord and Savior, What's keeping you from doing that? Do you realize how much God loves you? Our culture's not going to say that. Our culture's going to say he's a big killjoy. He wants you to follow these laws and these rules and these regulations. No, Jesus said he has come to give joy and to give joy abundantly. God, forgive us for running after our own joy and not after yours. And if you're here today and you're ready to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, you're ready to say, I want to put the things in the past, the past, sin in the past, I want to be ruled by Christ, then it's as simple as saying, God, I pray today to receive you 
your son, Jesus Christ, as my Lord and Savior. I receive you in faith. From this day forward, I'm going to follow you. I'm making a U-turn. I'm repenting. I'm calling sin, sin. I'm going by your standards. Lord, I'm going to live according to your ways. I follow you now. And if you today just prayed that prayer, if that's the intention of your heart, then we invite you also to partake of these elements. These elements are for you. Jesus did this for us. God, thank you for going to the cross for us. Thank you for allowing us to be your bride. We love you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.